Hey, everybody, Elizabeth here. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to make sure that you know registration is currently open for our Spring Strong Foundations cohort. Strong Foundations is a five-week strength building program brought to you by me and Morgan Bungers. Coach Morgan Bungers is one of the best, most effective strength training coaches in this country. He has worked with some of the most elite athletes in the world, and now he specializes working with people in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s who want everyday strength. And this is not about being able to push your suitcase into the overhead compartment on an airplane. We need to be consistently and effectively strength training if we want to maintain the strength of our immune system. Muscle is a critical part of our immune system. And if we are not actively maintaining our strength, we are losing it as we age. And that means we are losing the strength of our immune system. It's also a significant component of our overall metabolism, especially our carbohydrate metabolism. Muscle mass plays a huge role in energy, in mood, mental health, bone health, so many different things. This is just not optional, but a lot of us don't do it because we aren't sure what to do. We aren't sure what not to do. We aren't sure if we're moving well. We don't know how to accommodate for our physical limitations or our current level of fitness, and that is why you need a coach and you'd be hard-pressed to find one better than Morgan Bungers. Now, here's the thing about fitness programs. I've experienced this. My mom, who's in her 70s, has experienced this, where you buy a fitness program and then you're like, okay, but I I can't do that workout because I'm not fit enough or I don't have enough balance or I don't have that equipment or that hurts my knees or it hurts my back. And then you're sort of just left to figure it out yourself, which means we often don't do anything. The great thing about Strong Foundations is that Morgan and I are part of it every single day and you have an unlimited ability to ask us questions in a group setting or via direct message so that Morgan can help you scale for you, for whatever equipment you have, for the time that you have, for your fitness level, for your body and your physical limitations. Five weeks, there's two different tiers. There's a beginner intermediate tier. There's an intermediate advanced tier. The testimonials that we have received from our previous clients will blow your mind. You can check them out and also register for your spot by going to primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. Primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. If you are an alum, if you have been through strong foundations before, I've already emailed you a renewal link with a special renewal rate. So please use that. If you don't see that email, let me know. For the rest of you, primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. We start on May 13th. So grab your spot now. You will have these workouts for life. Four workouts a week for five weeks, two different tiers. So you've got 40 workouts total. Plus, there is a five-part series on your pelvic floor. That is an incredibly important part of your physical fitness, of your strength, of your core strength, of your overall health, of your ability to maintain functional mobility as you get older. We want you to be a part of this. You will not regret joining the Strong Foundations cohort. It is an incredible community. 
everybody needs to be consistently and effectively strength training. And if you're not, it's probably because you don't know how to make it work for you. And it can be made to work for you. It needs to be made to work for you. Primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation to register now. Let's get into the episode. This is Primal Potential, and I am your host, Elizabeth Benton. Through education, motivation, and implementation, we will bridge the gap between knowing and doing so we can master fat loss naturally and help you reach your highest potential. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Primal Potential Podcast. I am Elizabeth Benton, and... I am really excited for this episode. I think this is a fascinating topic. One quick thing before we dive in. There is a live webinar tonight on creating your own motivation, staying motivated. Remember, I say all the time that there's no plan that's a good plan if you don't follow it. So if you are listening to this episode on the day it airs, which would be February 16th of 2016, you can join me live tonight. You can either register by texting the word motivate me, one word, motivate me, to the number 33444, or you can go to the show notes page for this episode at primalpotential.com and you'll see the registration there. And if you're not listening live, sorry you missed it. I hate that you weren't there, but let's definitely catch up next time. Now, this topic, today's topic, I don't think I'm going to be able to fit it into one episode, but we will play it by ear. So here's kind of what happened. Here's the backstory. A few episodes ago, in episode 137, which is really like episode 170-something when you factor in the Q&As, but official episode 137, I talked about the book Always Hungry. And I introduced the concept that in many cases, we aren't getting fat because we overeat, we overeat because we're getting fat. And if you hear that and you're like, huh, that's confusing. I totally understand why you think that. Definitely listen to episode 137 before you listen to this one, just so we're all on the same page. But the two second recap of that and the lead into where we're going today is that the type of foods we are eating you know, the processed foods, the sugary drinks, snack packs, sweetened yogurts, they create a hormonal environment that increases our appetite and our cravings while putting our body in fat storage overdrive. So we're getting fat, we're hungry, and we're battling cravings all the time. Now, that episode, 137, had two basic premises, and I really only covered one of them. Those two premises were, number one, the standard American diet makes us overeat and accelerates fat storage, and then number two, we can create, through our food choices, a hormonal environment that makes us less likely to overeat and encourages our body to release and burn stored fat. In episode 137, I talked about how to do number two. Well, <laughs> I didn't, not like how, what I, the second premise I talked about in that episode. Today, I want to talk about the first premise or number one. 
Um, <laughs> I distract myself sometimes, but I got a lot of great feedback. Let's just, let's just move right past that. I got a lot of great feedback on episode 137. And so I wanted to make today's show and probably the next episode as well to talk about that first point of the standard American diet, making us overeat and accelerating fat storage so that we're all on the same page about that, right? The fact that the way many of us eat sets us up to overeat, to rarely feel satisfied, and to have that gimme more reaction to food, right? And I was also asked to dive a little bit deeper into this by one of my group coaching clients after I talked on one of our webinars about hyper palatables or things that are added to foods that actually make us want to eat more. Now, Before we dive into this, since I mentioned episode 137 and the whole always hungry thing, I wanted to address some feedback I got on that episode that wasn't positive. I love feedback, positive or negative, and I'm always open to differing opinions. But I want to be really clear about something, because I think that the reason I got negative feedback from this one individual misses everything that I stand for and everything that I encourage, okay? And I, and I, sometimes I think I make things clear and then I think I must not have, so I want to go back and address that. This individual didn't like and didn't agree with the science behind the book Always Hungry, and that's cool. Okay, I'm not a researcher and I'm down with everybody having an opinion, but here's why I'm bringing it up. I want to make sure that everybody's clear on my premise, and I feel like I say it a lot, but then sometimes I'm like, did I say that to a client? Did I say that in a group setting? Did I say that on a webinar? Did I say that on a podcast? So I'm covering my bases and saying it here. My premise is let your body be your guide. The truth comes from you and your health and your results. There is no study, there is no book, no podcast, no blog, no anybody's opinion that trumps what your body tells you. So if you don't like the science, I sure hope that you don't like the science because your body told you it wasn't true for you. I have zero issue with somebody saying, you know what, Elizabeth, I just feel better and get better results if I have a banana in the morning. Now, I don't hear that very often, but if that's somebody's story, cool, great, go for it. Please look at everything through the lens of what works for my body, what makes me feel my very best, what increases my energy, what manages my hunger and eliminates my cravings, what stabilizes my mood and supports my sleep, and improves my body composition, right? Helps me look good naked. Just so we're all really clear, that is what I stand for. So I'm not sorry for that soapbox moment, but it would make me really sad if anybody was missing that message. So if you are somebody who is looking to follow somebody or some podcast that like really staunchly believes in a particular nutrition principle, that's cool. There are a ton of podcasts out there that do that. Not this one. I still love you, but that's not my jam. My jam is your body gives you your feedback, and I want to help you get in tune with that. So anyways, let's get down to the business of premise number one, right? That many of the foods we are choosing to eat on a regular basis set us up to overeat to crave more food, and to never really feel satisfied by what we're eating or how much. I share regularly how when I was at my heaviest, near 350 pounds, I would go to Chick-fil-A on my way to work in the morning. 
And I would eat a lot, right? I would get a chicken biscuit, I would get chicken minis, I would get a huge Diet Coke and hash browns. And a couple of hours later, though I wasn't really hungry per se, I wanted more. I wanted more food. That All that food didn't like make me stuffed, right? I wanted more food. So I'd go get like trail mix or a candy bar. I'd have a protein bar. I'd do, you know, whatever. I just was always looking to eat more and nothing ever really satisfied me. I always was looking to like scratch the itch and that's a very real thing. But we have to kind of ask ourselves, why is this suddenly a problem? And I use the word suddenly very loosely, but like our grandparents liked cake and they certainly had the occasion to eat it. But why could they stop at one slice and not feel like a maniac or not feel like it required superhuman will? And we struggle with that. So there are a couple of points that I really want to spend some time talking about. And number one is that whole foods, like real food, fruits, vegetables, meat, chicken, have changed. Whole foods have changed, but processed foods have also changed. And so those two factors combine to create a situation where weight gain is easy and weight loss is not, right? So the processed foods, they are now carefully created so that we eat more. These companies making them must turn a profit. They make more money when we eat more. If we feel satisfied or full from the food, they make less money because we don't buy it as often. So there's a lot happening. Years of research and millions of dollars are being spent on one food item to carefully design it so that we eat more, so that it doesn't trigger satiety, and so that it gives us the intense urge to eat more of it. And then the commercials often tell us that we won't be able to stop, right? Plus, the other factors here are that these foods are way more accessible than they used to be, and they're affordable. They're cheap as all get out. Now, the other side of this, and which is where I think we're going to spend the majority of our time today, but we will absolutely go back to the processed food side of things, is how whole foods have changed. Whole foods have changed so much so that to many of us, they're bland or they're bitter, but they have no appeal. And that blandness, the lack of flavor from whole foods is very real and relatively new, okay? Plus, we have to contrast these whole foods as they become more bland to the relative hyper palatable processed foods that we eat. So on their own, they're bland, but compared to these hyper palatable processed foods, they're like way bland, right? Compared to a Kit Kat bar, Brussels sprouts are like a joke. They're bitter and they're disgusting. We've become very dependent on the flavor profiles and the textures of processed foods, right? So in a lot of ways, the deck is kind of stacked against us. Cheap, accessible food is created very strategically to be addictive and not fill us up. Whole foods cost more money and because of the changes in how these whole foods are produced or raised, they're bland, right? And relative to the addictive, hyperpalatable processed foods, they don't taste as good. So we don't want the whole foods. We want cake. Food is getting blander and flavor technology is getting better. So who wins in this situation? 
the food companies win, the chemical companies win, the drug companies win because we're all like fat and sick, right? Who loses? You do. Your kids do. And though I acknowledge that in some ways the deck is stacked against us, there is hope. We can change this absolutely positively. I know this because speaking as like study of one, I have changed it for myself. I have watched my clients change it for themselves. The folks in my winter group right now, I am actively watching them do for themselves and their palates what I did to mine. If you think that it is sheer willpower that allows me to avoid ice cream and cupcakes, you are out of your mind bonkers bananas. I was a legitimate food addict who craved intensely Hostess cupcakes, candy, Mexican food, ice cream, all the time. And I would be exhausted and miserable and cranky if I was just white-knuckling my days without those things. That's not what happened. My true preferences have changed dramatically and in a lot of ways, kind of easily, relatively speaking. I'm not toughing it out when I say no to cake. I don't want it. And so the whole point of this series is to help you understand how to do that for yourself, how to overcome the cravings and the elements that are contributing to obesity and food addiction, to binging and all of that. So this is how we're going to tackle it. This is what I want to do. We're going to talk about what has happened to Whole Foods. Why are they different? How are they different? What can we do about it? And then we're going to talk about processed foods, probably in a separate episode. What are these hyperpalatables? How do we avoid them? How do we break the grip that they very legitimately have over us right now? All of it can be done. And I'm going to help you figure out how to do it for yourself. So let's talk about whole foods, fruits, vegetables, meat, fish. Things have changed dramatically. And if you want a book that goes into this in a ton of detail, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's called The Dorito Effect by Mark Schatzker or something like that. But I'll link to it in the show notes over at primalpotential.com. I want to share one of the stories from this book because this is a story about chicken, but this same story can be told about beef about pork, about fruits and vegetables. It's a really good story. I'm going to kind of give you the cliff notes of this story that uh, I first read about in the Dorito Effect. So here's, here's how it goes. In World War II, beef was rationed, all right? Lots of things were rationed during the war in the U.S., but chicken was not rationed. So chicken consumption went way up, right? Prior to the war, beef was the American preference. Chicken wasn't cheap, but it also wasn't rationed during the war, so it became a bit of a household staple, right? But then the war ended, and the beef ration ended, so the chicken farmers were like, uh, we gotta, like, get creative here. We need a steady supply of affordable chicken. So they launched a contest, and it was called, which now is just, like, I I can't help but shake my head, it was called the Chicken of Tomorrow contest, and the whole goal of the competition was to create bigger chickens, more meat, that cost less and grew faster so they could have a steady supply of chickens into the market and compete with beef. So what they did was they created a wax mold of the ideal chicken, which is kind of funny because I feel like the chickens of today, which was then tomorrow, actually taste like the wax mold, but that's neither here nor there. So they created this wax mold of the ideal chicken and they sent it all around the country and they said, you can win $10,000 
when you raise chickens that uniformly look like this ideal chicken. And $10,000 obviously doesn't sound like a lot of money back then. It was, but more than that, these farmers wanted to be known throughout the country as having the best chickens, grown the fastest for the less, least amount of money. Like, that's pretty dang good for business, right? So there were these regional competitions, and then there were the finals, and the finals were held in 1948 in Maryland. The judging criteria for this Chicken of Tomorrow contest were things like uniformity of size. They obviously wanted the chickens to be around the same size. The quality of the skin the size of the breasts, and then the average weight, right? They wanted big chickens that kind of looked the same and had big breasts. What was not part of the judging criteria? Flavor. And this was the beginning of the big problem because this was about money. It wasn't about quality. How can we make chickens grow bigger, faster, and cheaper? And just to kind of give you a sense of the evolution of what happened prior to the Chicken of Tomorrow contest versus where we are now, ready? I'm going to give you a quick rundown of sort of how this changed. I'm wishing I had like a little flip book for you, you know, how you used to like thumb through and see the pictures change really fast, but I don't have that. So just listen as if you had another choice. In 1923, it took about 16 weeks to raise a chicken to about 2.2 pounds. So in 1923, after 16 weeks of raising a chicken, it would weigh just over two pounds. 10 years later, in 1933, they reduced that down to 14 weeks to get up to about 2.8 pounds. So the chickens were getting bigger in less time. 10 years later, in about 1943, down to 12 weeks to get to about three pounds. Five years later, just in time for the Chicken of Tomorrow competition, 1948, they called these chickens miracle chickens because they were getting to about four pounds in less than 12 weeks on way less food. Now, to give some context how that compares to today, in 1923, it was taking 16 weeks to get a chicken to about 2.2 pounds. Now... We raise chickens in about 35 days to over five pounds on about a third of the food as was used in the 40s. And again, flavor was not part of the criteria. And one of the things that the author of this book, The Dorito Effect, points out, which I thought was hysterical, that Julia Childs in her cookbook started saying in the 50s or 60s that chicken had changed and now tasted like teddy bear stuffing, which is just like, I don't know why, but I totally know what teddy bear stuffing tastes like. I don't know why. But anyway, so... The, the chicken of tomorrow was all about big breasted meaty chickens bring on the jokes, but that's what it was about. And in fact, one of the jokes in the Dorito effect that totally had me like rolling on the floor laughing was he said that the whole point of the chicken of the of tomorrow contest was to create the porn star of the meat world. Big breasts and that's about it. <laughs> so anyway, that's so mean and so wrong, but so funny. But anyway, it's chicken, so we can knock on chickens. So if humans, just to put this in context, grew as fast as these chickens are growing, a 6.6-pound newborn baby after two months would weigh 660 pounds. I mean, that's obviously terrifying because we have to understand that chickens are not meant to grow that fast. And it's terrifying because the same thing is happening with cows and pigs and fruits and vegetables. We know this doesn't happen naturally. Oh, let's just grow a chicken to slaughter in 35 days and miraculously it's just like five times bigger on 
you know, a third of the food. No. It happens by mainlining carbohydrates, feed that is essentially pure carbohydrate. But we have to figure, how do we force feed animals? Because an animal is naturally going to regulate how much it eats. So how do we overcome that? By adding what are called palatants, our palate is like how we perceive taste. So palatants are things that stimulate overeating. They stimulate our palate so we eat more. Palatants are added to the animal food. They're also added to our human food. And in fact, the same ones that are added to animal feed are added to our human processed foods. And then the other thing that contributes to the excessive growth, of course, is hormones, which is very scary. And as it relates to flavor, because we're talking about how these whole foods just don't taste the same, the change in the feed and what these animals are being fed dramatically impacts the flavor, right? And the accelerated growth impacts the flavor. Animals used to graze and they would naturally eat a wide variety of grasses and seeds and bugs and you name it. And those things, the food they ate, created the, fro the flavor profile of the meat, right? Now they eat very highly processed corn and wheat and soy and we lose the natural flavor of the animal. Plus, they're babies. They're babies when they sent to slaughter. They don't have the time to develop a flavor profile when because they're just so young when they're sent to slaughter. Now let's talk about these palatants, all right? These chemicals created to make the animals eat more to make humans eat more. Animals are not going to overeat rapidly. They'll get full. So the chemical companies created palatants and they sold them to the farmers. And these are the same flavor solutions sold to food companies. They, they're also sold to these large scale farming operations. Seriously, some of the palatants used in the pig feed, the chicken feed, the cow feed, are butterscotch flavor and caramel flavor, the same as used in human products to make you channel your inner piglet. I'm like, I'm joking, but it's because it's like so bad that it's almost hysterical, right? It's scary that this is what is happening. These palatants are very carefully formulated to trigger addictive responses in humans and in animals because otherwise the animals and us humans would never normally eat that much. Right now with the animals, they also reduce their grazing ability because they didn't want them walking around outside because feed efficiency was such a factor. The more active the animals were, the more energy they expended. So the more food they needed to be fed to accelerate their growth. They didn't want that. Feed efficiency was about how can we make these animals grow the fastest on the least amount of food so they had to keep them locked up or closely confined to reduce their activity, right? Now, as I said, the same thing happened and is happening, continues to happen with fruits and vegetables and wheats and grains, right? As food companies are adding chemical flavoring, palatants, hyperpalatables to processed foods, right? we're seeing the same thing happen to fruits and vegetables that we're having to chickens. They're less flavorful, they're more bland because of the same financial considerations that started the whole chicken of tomorrow comp uh, competition. How can we grow more tomatoes, potatoes, pineapples, whatever, faster 
with less food and water, right? Corn in the 1960s looked exactly the same as it did in the 1930s, but it didn't taste the same. It was weaker. It didn't have as much flavor, much more bland. Same thing with potatoes. In the 1930s, the average potato farmer produced 63 pounds of potato for every acre of land. And then just 30 years later, they went from 63 pounds per acre to 200 pounds per acre. There's a dilution effect happening there. And like probably almost a year ago now in the podcast, I, sh I shared some of the research from a very prominent researcher named Donald Davis. Now, he compared the nutritional profiles of vegetables from the 1930s to vegetables in 1999. Kale had half as much riboflavin, one of your B vitamins, in 1999 as it did uh, and is actually in the 50s, not the 30s. So it had half as much riboflavin in 1999 as in the 50s. Cauliflower, uh, cauliflower had half as much thiamine, another B vitamin. Asparagus had three times less vitamin C. This is the dilution effect. And what does that mean to you? Certainly fewer nutrients, but also less flavor. I know uh, my, my dad's mom used to make tomato sandwiches with homemade mayonnaise and from her garden. And whenever we would go there, the tomatoes tasted so much different from a tomato at the grocery store because a tomato at the grocery store tasted like water. There was very, very little tomato flavor compared to a homegrown tomato. That's why so many grandparents say that they haven't had a good tomato or they haven't had a good piece of corn or whatever it is in years and years and years. And this is why. Just like with the chickens, farmers are genetically modifying fruits and vegetables to accelerate their growth rate so that they make more money and have more food to put on the truck for the grocery stores so that they get a uniform size and color. You know how it is if you've ever had a garden, right? Your tomatoes look so different. Some are like really tiny, some are really big, some are in the middle, some are cracked, some are, you know, more yellow, some are more red. You can't have that lack of uniformity in the grocery store. That's not what farmers get paid for. So they are modifying the fruits and vegetables to accelerate their growth rate, to get uniformity of size and color, to slow the ripening process so that they last longer on a truck or a grocery store shelf without going bad. And so they get more yield from less land so that they make more money. So there's more fruit or vegetable being produced by the same parcel of land, which means there's fewer nutrients going to that fruit or vegetable, less flavor, and they're growing more quickly. So just like the young chicken, there's not as much time for flavor to develop and they're picked far before ripening so that they can make it to the grocery store and last a day or a week or three weeks in the grocery store shelf without going bad. So the flavor has not developed. What we see is that what, what increases in these vegetables and fruits, because they've also gotten a lot bigger, right? Size is a big factor. People want big apples. People want, you know, they're not going to choose the little tiny avocado over the big avocado. I know I used to buy the biggest apples I could find. Now I tend to opt for the smaller ones because the flavors tend to be more concentrated. But with these bigger fruits and vegetables, we see more what's called dry matter. The dry matter is water and carbohydrate content. There's more dry matter, less nutrition, less flavor, bland food. 
And again, we have to look at this contrasted to hyperpalatable processed foods. So the whole foods just don't look that interesting. We feel like we're missing out because we are. We're missing out on flavor. And we can change this, and we're going to talk about that. I don't want you to think like, oh, we're just screwed back to the Doritos. No, no. There's one more thing I, I want to hit on today before we decide to take a break until the next episode where we talk about processed foods and how to overcome this. And that is I want to talk about the role of scent, your nose, smelling. Because if you think about it, when you buy chicken from the grocery store, what does it smell like? Mm, not much. Same thing with beef. What does it smell like? Not much. A, a banana? Very faint, right? Food doesn't smell as strong as it used to, and that is a big factor in flavor. Much of what we think of as taste or flavor is actually aroma. Our tongue can only process the primary tastes, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, umami, right? The rest of how we characterize the flavor of food comes from scent, okay? Back of the nose smelling. And if you think about it, it's really kind of obvious. Have you ever had a bad cold and your nose is congested and you say you can't taste anything? Well, there's nothing wrong with your mouth. But if you can't smell, you'll say that you can't taste. Weird, right? This is why like wine connoisseurs do so much sniffing when they're assessing wines, because so much of the flavor we experience comes through our nose. And processed foods have way stronger scents than our whole foods do. Much of how these processed foods are put together is based on how they stimulate our sense of smell. Our sense of smell, that is so major. And I really want to reiterate that this is not hopeless. I want to spend the next episode talking about the hyperpalatables and the processed foods, but the majority of the next episode I want to spend talking very specifically about what you can do to change this because you absolutely can. Your palatable, your palatable, your palate is changeable. And we know this because we see children's palates evolve, right? And our own palates as adults have evolved. I used to hate coffee, right? And I used to not be able to drink coffee black. So first I didn't like coffee at all. Then I started to really like coffee. Now I love coffee and I even love it black. I used to not like dark chocolate. I used to not like red wine. Now I love all of them. How is that possible? The evolution of our palate. So this is possible and even enjoyable. I don't, I hate to leave you without action steps, so I definitely want to give you a couple of action steps before we spend the majority of the next episode talking about what specifically we can do about the blandness of the whole foods and how we can come off of and stop desiring the hyperpalatability. It is possible to try those things that you currently love and go, ugh, that's disgusting. So how do we get there? What does that look like? What steps can we take so we don't lose our minds, right? What I want you to do in the meantime, because the next episode will air on Thursday, what I want you to do in the meantime is ask yourself every time you eat, where is the flavor of this meal coming from? Is it coming from something directly related to the food I'm eating, like the source of the food, or is the flavor coming from something man-made? I want you to work on letting your flavor come from the source itself, not something added. So the source itself could be garlic. The flavor is coming from garlic. The flavor is coming from butter. The flavor is coming from olive oil, from quality meat, from fresh, good vegetables that smell really strong or fresh fruit, not from a chemical factory. 
not from added flavoring or uh, spice packs or anything like that. Like, let it come from the food itself. Nothing with MSG or added. And I'm not saying you have to stop eating these, but what I want you to do is first increase your awareness. Every time you put something in your mouth, what is delivering this flavor? Is it truly coming from the source or is it coming from something created to make this hyper palatable? I want you to begin to look at food that way. What is the source of your flavor? Smell your food. Really just get familiar with this stuff because this is a big part of changing your palate. All right, before I tell you what I ate yesterday and where the flavor came from, reminder, if you are listening to this episode on the day that it airs, Tuesday, February the 16th, we have a live free webinar on specific strategies to stay consistent and generate your own motivation every day because there is no food change in the world that you can sustain if you do not know how to generate your own motivation. You can join by texting the word motivate me, one word, no space, motivate me to the number 33444. Don't put a space, it won't work. Motivate me to the number 33444 or just go to the show notes page for this episode and it'll be really clear how you can join. If it's after the 16th, I'm glad you're here, but you missed it, no big deal. What I ate yesterday, started the day with coffee because every day has to start that way. And I actually put in my coffee one of my failed culinary experiments. I was trying to make these cubes of like coconut oil and raw cacao and concentrated cold brew, but they weren't really very good. Um, So I dropped one of them in my coffee. Then I got my workout in about an hour after my workout. I took literally, I promise I'm not exaggerating, one pound of shredded cabbage and added to that an over easy egg, one slice of bacon, a half an avocado, and a handful of toasted walnuts and mashed it all together. Mid-afternoon-ish, I had a package of Mary Shenouda's Fat Fudge, which is currently sold out, but it is delicious if you can get your hands on any. And then evening time, I really wasn't very hungry. Uh, Dinner was just Brussels sprouts with walnuts and some cauliflower rice, so heavy on the veggies, but that was about it. I did uh, cook the Brussels sprouts in olive oil, but uh, that's what I had for dinner last night. So I'm really looking forward to you joining me for the second part of this, talking about hyperpalatables in processed food, what makes us want to eat more, and how we can work to improve our palate to break free of these hyperpalatables and enjoy whole foods more. So we'll see you in a couple of days for that. Talk to you later. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Primal Potential Podcast, where my goal is not to inform you, but to transform you. And if you would like to receive free motivation and strategy and recipes, workouts, meal ideas every week right to your inbox, just text the word PRIMAL to the number 44222 or go to primalpotential.com slash join. It's a great way to get the tools, the strategies, and the practical implementation assistance that you need to create your own transformation between podcast episodes. Just text the word PRIMAL to the number 44222 or go to primalpotential.com slash join. See you there.